It was so clever, man. I mean, it was Jerky Boys level quality stuff. And I remember like when we were doing these, I would, we had a speakerphone in our house. If you remember, speakerphones were a thing back then, right? And I took the speakerphone and plugged it in next to my computer and had the call on speakerphone and had my microphone at the speaker so I could record the calls. And I had a library of probably 20, 25 prank calls that we did. They're probably still on my old Packard Bell computer in my parents' house, like in the basement or something. <laughs> Please state your handle and the years you were active on AOL. I went by the handle Emerge, and I was active from 96 to about 2002. And when did you first use a computer? Oh, God, I was probably eight or nine years old. My dad was a programmer, and he showed me MS-DOS, which I thought was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> Do you remember what version of DOS? Oh, God, no. I have no idea. That's funny. Yeah, most kids are probably bored with with DOS. Uh, right, yeah, like <laughs> most kids would be like, what? I want to play a game, but I just thought like he showed me how to run commands and stuff, and I just found it fascinating. And I was like, show me how to do more. <laughs> so when you first got on AOL, how did you end up finding the scene? That's a good question. I got on, I don't know if it was prior to the scene, but I certainly didn't know about the scene. But I remember just one day, you know, well, first of all, you know, the, on AOL, they had those little uh, web pages you could make, like your little personal profile web pages, right? And then there were things like GeoCities and Angel Fire where you could build your own websites. And I was doing that. But I guess randomly one day I was in a chat room and somebody, you know, scrolled something, right? And I was like, what the hell is that? And it was probably, you know, fate or something like that. And so I got them to send it to me and I downloaded it and ran it. And I had never seen software that wasn't like very buttoned up and corporate. You know, this wasn't made by Microsoft. You know, you always see like, you know, hackers and stuff on TV shows or movies, but like... This was something real that I was running on my own computer. Um, and it was Fate X2.5, which was my first one. And it's funny because like now I'm a UI engineer and those apps are so ugly, like they're hideous interface wise. But that was part of its appeal, right? Was that it didn't look like normal software. And I got that one. Then I got Exorcist. You had Haas on the podcast. I think it was the first episode. Yeah, that's right. Haas was like a god to me back then. So if you're listening, Haas, dude, you were the man. But I remember getting Exorcist and it had the intro. So like the, the image of the bed pops up and it starts playing metal music and then the words are spinning around. And I was just like, what the hell is this, right? And it just felt so much more, you know, counterculture and, and rebellious, right? And I was hooked immediately after that. And so, you know, then it became like, a, like almost like a collector's thing. Like I wanted to get as many of them as I could, to like find different ones and download them and look at them and stuff like that, right? I probably have like 20 at that point in time. It's funny. They all kind of did the same thing, but like they all felt different right, yeah. at the same time, as, you know? Totally right. Yep. So then did you decide to make your own programs as well? Yeah. I remember this exactly how it happened too. I had a friend of mine, he was about two years younger than me, who lived across the street from me. And we were both into AOL and the AOL proxy and everything. And one day he, I, we didn't have like text messaging back then. I guess he maybe like IM'd me or something and said, hey, I found the program that makes the progs. I'm like, wait, what? And I literally like got up, ran out my front door and ran over to his house and just like walk into his bedroom and like show it to me. You're like, let me see this thing. And it was Visual Basic. And he started showing me like how you create a form and buttons. And after about 
10 minutes of him showing it to me, I said, send it to me. Like forward me the AOL email you got with the file zipped up, right? And then ran back home and started downloading it, which took probably like 10 hours or something back then. And then just started, you know, playing around with, you know, I couldn't really make anything. I could draw a form and I could change the name of the window, right? And make the colors different. And we wouldn't actually do anything. But even that was just so cool. And so, but the creative instinct in me was immediately triggered, right? Like, oh, I can build things now and create my own things. That's a different level of enjoyment, right? When you're the one creating the thing. Yeah, so true. So yeah, it's kind of funny. Like when I first got it, um, really it's my brother that got it. And I only knew one command and it was beep. So I was like, <laughs> make these programs with all these buttons everywhere. So I'm like, you know, punt or whatever. And then I just made a beep and I was like, that's all I could do. <laughs> I was a big fan of message box. Oh yeah. Yeah. I figured that. It's like beep and message box. And then, then yeah. I got send keys or whatever. So how did you start learning like, you know, methods and, and API yeah. and all that? So I realized that I have to make the buttons do stuff eventually. Right. And I had no clue how programming worked. But luckily, when I installed Visual Basic, I installed all the sample projects. And so I just started poking around those projects and just looking at what they were doing and just kind of, you know, sort of deducting what I felt was going on. And then that with reading a lot of the help files, just started to understand like what an if-then statement was and how the logic works and all those kind of things. And just slowly built piece by piece by piece different functionalities. None of this worked with AOL though, right? Like I didn't have any of the modules to work with AOL yet. So, but I was understanding how programming worked. And then just like before, my neighbor was like, I found this thing called a dot bass file that has all the functions for AOL. And I'm like, what? And so then I figured out, oh, this thing is where you can have, you know, chat bots and punters and all that kind of stuff. And it also gave me even more examples of code to look at, right? Like I probably saw what a for loop was at that point in time. So really just like looking at other people's work and learning from experience and trying and failing a bunch of times. That's not that different from today, right? Just right. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah, Nothing's changed 20 years later. That's funny. Yeah. I remember some of the sample projects. I think one of them was like a CD-ROM. Um, it was like play button and stop. And yeah, you could like, that's right. Yeah, I thought that was like the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like integrate that in my program. I don't think I would do that. <laughs> no reason why, just so it could do it. <laughs> Yeah, like I think that there. Did you ever have WinPlay? I think it was like by Froffenheimer. It was like the first MP3 player. I recognize that name, but I don't think I ever had it. It was like pre WinAmp. It was called it was called WinPlay. Okay. And it was made by this German guy, like Froffenheimer. He's like the guy that invented MP3 or something. I don't know. Nice. I'm probably saying his name wrong, but yeah. anyway. So, did you make any particular programs like that people might know of, or like maybe a, a screenshot of? We can put in the show notes. I don't think they'll ever know of them. I was not AO famous in any way. <laughs> I made a bunch of things, and it was terrible at distribution, and just didn't. I mean, I didn't really care if people used them. Like, I just had fun building them. But I would say, like, the thing that I'm probably the most proud of, or the most impactful one, was an app called Crackerjack. So at some point along this journey, it became very popular amongst the community to go on to conference calls and like voice chat with one another. Wait, wait but like, like just random people or people like... People that you would talk to in the chat rooms, like your AO hacker friends, right? Whatever. They would get together on conference call lines, which is like Discord today, right? It's the exact same thing, but 20 years ago. Wait, but is this, is this over TCPIP? No, over the phone. So what they would do is someone who was pulling credit card scams would steal a credit card number and go register a conference call line and then share the 800 number and the PIN number to the conference on the chat room. 
you just call it on your house phone or wherever. And it became like this like trend of people wanting to do that and hang out and stuff like that. And one of the things you could do on it was dial out feature from the conference. You can make an outgoing call and then patch it back in and they could not trace the call because you're using the conference call as a proxy. So we would do like prank calls all day long to people across the country and just listen to each other make prank calls. It was hilarious and fun. Oh, that must have been really fun at that age. It was. It was really fun. I did not want to get involved in the credit card stuff. I knew that was like really risky stuff and you could get in a lot of trouble for it. So what I did instead was I figured out a way to crack the PIN numbers of the conference calls because they weren't very secure. Like It was a six-digit number, which is not hard to just brute force guess it, right? And even even that, that, it was really only five digits because the first digit was either a one or a six. It was a one if you're an admin and six if you were a regular user. So really five digits. So what, like 10,000 numbers? So I built this app with Visual Basic called Cracker Jack that would turn on your modem, it would call the 800 number, and then it would generate random numbers and then try them and then see if it got one. And it would do that over and over and over again. And then I ended up cracking, you know, probably 10 or 15 different conference lines. And so... Were these like static lines that like were always open on people's credit cards? Yeah, so like probably a business had this, you know, on reserve or retainer to use. And we just jacked it. So I thought the name Cracker Jack actually worked out very well. But it was the, you know, the play on the, the snack food. But also we cracked the conference, then we jacked it, right? So Oh, that, that's hilarious. Did you ever end up on there and then like the business comes we on? We did. Like, <laughs> we did. It was like a Saturday night. We're all on there being idiots, whatever. And this clearly older man comes on like this booming mature voice and just was you know like excuse me this is not the you know Tulsi conference line you know whatever (laughs) we're like what and then being a bunch of bratty kids and teenagers or whatever we started talking crap to the guy and making fun of him and everything and telling him to get lost he was a lamer he was like what what is that (laughs) that's so funny you called him a lamer yeah noob (laughs) right yeah stuff like that and we didn't think much of it he just kind of hopped off And then a few days later, I got a phone call. I got a message on my answering machine of someone from AT&T telling me that they had on record uh, my phone number calling into the conference line, you know, thousands of times, which was true because I had done it and having committed somewhere in the neighborhood of like $10,000 worth of fraud. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) How'd that that make you feel? I have never been more scared in my entire life. So I was probably, I would say like 15 at the time this happened. And I would get home from school before my parents got home from work. So I heard the message before they got home. And I'm just like, oh, perfect. Oh, crap. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Right? I don't know. And I'm like, tell tell me you deleted it. (laughs) I didn't. I took the, I, I like planned my speech. And I prepared it for my mom when she got home and I gave it to her and let her play the message. And I thought like she was just going to destroy me and like, you know, kill me. And she actually called the guy back and started questioning him, like asking for his credentials and make sure he was legitimate. And is there a law that I broke and like defending me? I was like, what? Like I was not expecting that move from my mom. I guess her maternal instincts kicked in or whatever. But, um, and then dad got home later and that wasn't fun, right? Dad, definitely. I got banned from the computer for like, I think a month, which it's funny because my dad was a programmer in his early years. And I always had this underlying suspicion that he was actually kind of proud of me because he made me show him the program. He's like, show me what you built. What did you do? Like, 
Walk me through it. Show me your code. I gave him I gave him a demo essentially of this app that I built, right? That stole conference lines. And at the time he was very angry and I got banned from the computer. But I always thought like, I'll bet at some small level, he was kind of proud that like, as a former programmer, his son built this with no training, right? And How could you not be? Yeah. Did you ever ask him later I if he did. was? I did. I did. I totally did. This was probably like, I don't know, 10 years later after I'd you know, gone and graduated college. I said, remember the time that I built that app? And then I said, were you like secretly proud? He's like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, That's, <laughs> That's pretty cool. Awesome. He couldn't tell me at the time, but I kind of figured, I mean, I would be too, right? Like. 15-year-old kid, no training, builds an app that just can do that, can accomplish that. Even if it's you know malicious, just the fact that it was so impactful is definitely pretty cool. So the application, it would dial the number and then it would input the random pen. Yep. And how did, what was the logic behind it? Like, how did it know that you actually connected? Yeah. So like, connection? this is the part that I'm ashamed of because it wasn't very smart. I didn't know how to, you'd have to like analyze the audio from the phone line, right? Which I did not know how to do. So <laughs> I literally sat there at the keyboard and I built hotkeys for it. And I would listen to the modem to hear if I got the acceptance or denied notification and press like either A or X on the keyboard or something like that. And it would know that's what had happened. So it's manual. So I sat there and cracked things like manually one by one, hitting keys on my keyboard. You know, I had it down to an efficient hotkeys method, but I had to sit there and do every single one by hand. How, how long did each try take each attempt? You could try three times per time you called. And once it denied you, you could like try a second and third time pretty quickly. So one run of three attempts was probably. 10 to 15 seconds. You got you to call the number, right? It's got a ring, got to pick up, dial one, wrong, dial two, wrong, dial three, wrong, hang up. That whole thing from beginning to end is probably 15 seconds. So I could do, call it 10 to 15 seconds, four to five a minute. That's not right? bad. So, no. so how long would it take you to find a conference line? I could usually get one on a good day within 20 minutes, a slow day, an hour and a half. Nice. Did you ever like give your program to anyone else? So it's funny, I started building it at a friend's house. I don't know why, we were just bored one day and I was showing him how you can write programs. And at the time we, I had been on the conference calls and so I had the idea in my mind and I started building it at his place. And so he actually got a phone call too because all the first you know, preliminary dials we did were from his number. So his mom and my mom were talking about, you know, what the hell they gotten into? <laughs> but I think I, I might've sent it to maybe like four or five people who asked for it. But again, I was kind of ashamed of the fact that it was so manual, right? That you had to do this thing where you push keys and listen to the modem. I was sort of somewhat ashamed of it, you know? Oh, got the job done at the end of the day. That's right. That's right. 100%. You probably could have like delegated it too, right? To some other people. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, there's probably people like in like India that would do it for like, <laughs> like, like one cents per call. I think like you can like outsource CAPTCHA. Yeah, like an API or whatever, and they'll sit there and they'll solve captures and they'll serve it up via an API for you. Yeah, but there was there was kind of an enjoyment of using it though, because again, it goes back to the fact that you built this thing, and when it finally does, it's almost like a slot machine, right? Like when it finally hits, it's like, oh, there's that rush, and oh, the thing worked, right? And it made all the hundred pass attempts worth it. Um, oh, yeah, I can see that. So there was there was a weird joy. Yeah, there was a weird joy in doing it once it worked. Almost like an addiction. Sure. <laughs> so after that did you do any more conference calls after the month was no up? i steered very clear of that 
afterward. I still program some stuff. I built like a chat command bot that just had, you know, had an MP3 player built into it. It had all the basic things, I am off, I am on, that kind of crap, you know, just chat comms were purely just to flaunt and show off, right? Like there's nothing more annoying and spammy than a chat command bot on AOL where like everyone sees the commands that you're typing. Like I would literally, it had an MP3 player built into it. So I'd hit like, you know, dot play and then you could type a string and it would search for that string. And if it found multiple songs, it would scroll in the chat room, all the songs that it found in my MP3 library. So I'm just showing off my music collection, right? (laughs) I'm like, okay, play, you know, I don't know, Nelly or whatever the hell it was back then. And people were like, I can't hear it. I'm like, I know it's just for me, but you have to watch me use it. That's that's so funny. (laughs) Which would have been a cool idea is if you could do a streaming site and let people in the chat room control it via chat commands. That would have been a really cool idea. Yeah, definitely. So going back to these conference calls, can you, is there any like particular calls that stand out like our particular pranks? Yeah, there was one guy, I forgot his name. I don't know how he came on there or who he was, but he was hilarious. Like the dude had the natural gift of just improvisation. And, you know, I was living in a small town in Georgia in the United States. And so, you know, you can imagine the kinds of people that answered the phone where we called, right? But we would call like the local dry cleaners and he would have this character. He was a pimp and that his 40 ounce and his crack was still in the pocket when he got the jacket back or something. Just, you know, off the wall. So if he called the local McDonald's near my house and then complained that there were bodily fluids in his McSalad shaker, it was in quote, not ranch dressing. <laughs> <laughs> man he he sounds really good actually i mean that, that's like an intricate story with like the dry cleaning it was stuff. it was so clever man i mean it was jerky boys level quality stuff and i remember like when we were doing these i would we had a speaker phone in our house if you remember speaker phones were a thing back then right and i took the speaker phone and plugged it in next to my computer and had the call on speakerphone and had my microphone at the speaker so i could record the calls and i had a library of probably 20, 25 prank calls that we did. They're probably still on my old Packard Bell computer in my parents' house, like in the basement or something. <laughs> oh, you should find those, man. We'll put them in the show We notes totally should. <laughs> any, any good ones, that'd be great. Yeah, that became sort of the new fun activity was coming up with new prank call ideas. So then you must have been a fan of Jerky Boys. I don't even know if I knew who Jerky Boys were at the time. Like, Oddly enough, I think I found Jerky Boys after this, maybe even as a result of it. Like I became interested in prank calls in general and then discovered Jerky Boys. But I don't think I knew who they were when we were doing this activity, which is funny. Did you ever get anybody to stand the line for like quite a while? Oh, yeah. He was so good at it, man. Like he would walk that line where like it's completely absurd, but still believable, right? And so he would keep people on the line for I'm talking like five minutes, which is a long time. And he would like get different managers on the phone from the businesses to talk in. So it like extend the call longer. It was really great stuff. I mean, he could have done it professionally. <laughs> Just wow. natural. If I mean, I don't know how much, you know, prank calling abilities pay these days, but he, that was his gift he was given at birth. Well, I mean, if you think about social engineering, right? I mean, if you can just sit there and just keep talking to people and like get them to give them information. Yeah. One thing we would do is we would call the 800 numbers on the on the TV. They had like you know, the the order TV, seen TV kind of things. You could order things over the phone. We would call those numbers, you know, like infomercials. That's what I'm trying to think of. We'd call the infomercial sales lines and just like 
waste the rep's time for like 15 minutes. Like saying we're going to buy this thing, but we can't find our checkbook or whatever, asking like the most stupid questions about the product. <laughs> That's oh, funny. It was a good time. So all the programming that you did during the AOL days, did it lead to anything professionally? Not initially. Initially, I actually went into sales, which is the last career I ever thought I would go into. I started off doing advertising sales in like magazines. And then several years later, I went to work at a company out of Atlanta called Scout Mob. It was like a Groupon living social type app. And that was kind of a, a foray into text sales because it was advertising for local businesses, but it was via a mobile app, right? So it was tech-focused advertising. And so there was a dev team there, right? And I remember seeing them, you know, writing code. And I'm like, man, I remember doing that when I was a kid on AOL. And it was so much fun. Like, I'm in the wrong career path, right? But I figured I'm still in tech, so that's cool enough. After I left that company, though, I went to a full-on software company and entire engineering organization. And again, seeing more developers and engineers just writing code all day long. And I'm like, man, that would be so much fun to do for a living. So I just went online to like Udemy and bought a $15 web development bootcamp course. It was like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And I already knew HTML and CSS because you know, I did some web pages back in the day. I picked up JavaScript very quickly because I would, what was it? Was it MIRC, Merck? Is that what it was called? The IRC yeah. client? That's right. um, I had played around on there for a while and built a few scripts on that, which is very similar to JavaScript. So I picked up JavaScript very quickly. And like the addiction of writing code and building things came right back instantly. Like it was like time had never passed at all. I would just wait to get home to work on my coding bootcamp. And I'd be up to like two in the morning doing it, right? Just loved it every second of it and said, I have to do this for a living. And so I started, you know, poking around with some of the engineering leadership at my company and showing them what I was working on. I'm like, Hey, I built a react app for my car. Hey, I built this thing. I built this thing. They're like, well, this is impressive. And I, you know, I said, what would it take for me to get a job as a UI engineer? They're like, do our coding exercise program and we'll do a technical review. And if you pass it, then you're in. And so I did it and I passed it. <laughs> it's funny because I was the number one sales rep at the company at the time. And then I quit to go join product engineering, which was, which confused a lot of people. Yeah. I've never heard of anybody going from sales to development. That's interesting. I mean, that's, that's just about the biggest leap you could make, right? But that's like kind of where your passion lies. It's uh, sometimes when you have a goal, it pulls you towards that goal. So you, have to, you get home and you're just so addicted to doing it yeah. until you reach the goal. Yeah. So it's, so that's, I mean, actually at that point in time became a professional UI engineer for a software company. And through that, I actually got a mentor who was one of the veteran, uh, like the architects of the company. And he was mentoring me on a weekly basis at night. And he and I had this really great chemistry, worked very well together. And we were both aspiring entrepreneurs. And one day he just flat out asked me, do you want to build something together? And I was like, absolutely, yes. And it, it made so much sense because you know he's a 20-year engineering veteran. He can build anything. I've got, you know almost a decade of sales underneath my belt, our two powers combined, we could do this thing, right? And so we began looking for ideas, threw out a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> and eventually one day he went to a restaurant and he looked over at the wall next to the bar and he saw four tablets, like Android tablets, you know, like almost like iPads, but Android, stuck to this wall with cables coming out of them and, and they're all flashing and beeping. And he was like, what the hell is that? And so we asked the bartender, 
and the bartender was like, dude, don't get me started on this. I hate this crap. And it was the Uber Eats app and the DoorDash app and the Grubhub app. And what we figured out was that there's all these delivery apps for restaurants and the restaurants use every single one of them at the same time, trying to get as much business as possible. But every one of those companies gives them a hardware piece like a tablet with an app on it to get the orders in on. So what happens is they end up with like four or five tablets on their counter trying to play whack-a-mole to get all the orders in. And so he took a picture and texted me and said, it might be the beer talking because he, he had a few beers at that point. He said, but I think this is the problem we need to solve. And I was like, yes, 100%. Because I had worked for that company, Scout Mob, that was heavily in the restaurant space. And this guy, my new business partner, had built integrations for 15 years. And those are the two most perfect skill sets to have for this product, right? And so we, I used my network of restaurant owners I knew from my old job. And we built an app called Order Nerd where literally, you know, you can take Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, and then have all that funnel into one tablet for you as a restaurant. And that way the employees have one screen to look at and makes it way faster for them. And then we started, you know, building and selling, building and selling, right? Just I mean, no, no organization, no structure, just two guys hammering code and then me hitting the streets and the phones trying to pitch it to restaurants. Um, So how's that work? Do you just like walk in and say, I want to talk to the manager or? So what I would do is I would walk in and look for the tablets. You can normally see them when you walk in They're up at the hostess stand or they're near the cash register. Like there's, there's places where they're almost always at. And so I would find the tablets and then I would ask someone working there already knowing the answer was yes. Hey, do you guys offer, like, can I order from you on Uber or DoorDash or Grubhub? They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which ones? And then they say, we're on Uber, DoorDash, and Grubhub. Do you guys have like a tablet for each one of those? Yeah. Cool. I built an app that puts it into one. Does that spark any interest? Can I talk to somebody about that? And the staff loves you at that point because the staff is the one that has the pain of having to deal with all that crap. And so they want the one tablet like yesterday. So you go to them, they'll give you the GM's phone number or the owner's email or whatever. And then you can contact the owner or GM directly and pitch them, right? So what's the benefit for them? Because if the those companies are giving you a free t- like a free tablet to like I don't know, use or whatever for their app, yep. like what's, what's the benefit for the GM? So if the GM cares about quality of life for their staff, that's probably number one because it's hell. Like if you see a picture of what this looks like with five tablets on the wall, you can just like feel the pain, right? And so if they care about the quality of life for their workers, that's probably point number one, but that doesn't mean anything for bottom line, right? So how do you pitch cost to them, right? It was efficiency. So moving orders through the line faster and getting out the door faster and less mistakes. Having to worry about, you know, not having to worry about different UIs, different interfaces, different workflows, and having everything go through one system consistently makes things faster and more accurate. And so it's more orders out the door faster with less mistakes. Yeah, that makes sense. So you guys built that and you sold a bunch, you sold to a bunch of stores and then that got acquired. Or is that still going on now? Or? Yeah. So we, we hustled for about two years. Keep in mind, COVID happened six months after we launched, which for us was almost a blessing or silver lining because restaurant delivery, you know, skyrocketed at that point. And so we got a lot of traction very fast and then began to get like some really serious signals of like people wanting to talk about like national chains wanting to do deals with us, acquisition offers from bigger software companies like POS companies. And I was like, man, this is a real thing. Like this is an actual real company. This isn't a side hustle anymore. So 
I quit my job and went full-time in it, which was the scariest thing I've ever done. And then within two months of that, we got accepted into the Techstars Accelerator program, which is like Y Combinator. Can you explain what, I guess, what that is for people that don't know? Yeah. So accelerators are programs where they take the applications for usually 10 startup companies that have shown some kind of level of traction. And it's a 90-day uh, program filled with mentorship, filled with educational, not seminars, but you know, lectures where you learn how to you know, do, like how to raise VC funding, right? How to pitch your things to angels, et cetera. All the different, you know, questions you have of like, how do you do a startup? You basically get crammed into your brain within 90 days through the program. And it's a very, very good networking uh, opportunity because tech community is very closely knit. And so you have people who, you know, started big companies that you can go talk to and ask, how did you do this? How did you handle this? How does this work? Right. And at the end of the program, there's demo day where you get up in front of a room full of investors and do the big, you know, pitch, the five minute pitch of your app. So for your pitch, did you have like slides or was it like a live demo? Yeah, you build a deck. Yeah, go? you build a deck. You can do a demo as part of it. We chose not to. I just felt a demo is kind of boring for us, but you do build a deck. You have a professional designer uh, help you with it. And they make you practice that probably a hundred times, literally. Like you practice it every day, 10 times a day for like two weeks straight to get it perfect. Did you learn not to say um when you presented? Yes. Yeah. You almost got muscle memory of the talk track. It's online. People can see it. If they, if they YouTube search order nerd demo day, then they'll probably find it. My dopey ass on stage talking about restaurants. <laughs> nice. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So, so all this happened very fast, right? I quit my job. We get into Techstars and we're literally on in the car on the way to the retreat for Techstars. And I'm on the phone with the president of this company talking about an acquisition offer because they had approached us a few weeks earlier about an integration. They were a restaurant app that could do your website, could do marketing and had online ordering for you. And they wanted to have their orders go through our platform. And at some point in the talks, the guy was like, are you guys open to acquisition talks? And I'm like, well, anything's negotiable, right? And so I'm literally you know, on the road to this. Techstars has like a less than 1% acceptance rate. So like to get into that program is extremely meaningful. And so I'm on the way to the, the kickoff or the retreat of one of the most exclusive sought out startup programs you could ever get into. And I'm negotiating on the other side, an acquisition deal of my company, the first one I've, I've ever started. Right. And so <laughs> having never done anything like that ever before. So it was a lot to happen at once, but to make a long story short, we actually ended up closing the acquisition deal on demo day hours before the event, like literally three or four hours before the event of demo day happened, we closed the deal. And so I had to go back and tell the team to like change my last slide to the announcement. So I was the very last company to present. And at the very end, I announced the acquisition as part of our presentation. So it, it worked out perfectly at the end of everything. Wow, that's pretty cool. Did, is it pretty rare for people to get acquired before demo day? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, most companies are super early stage when they get into Techstars. We were a little bit older in terms of timeline. Most of the companies there in my class were less than one year old. So it's, it's probably less common for that reason. But there was another one who got acquired like right after demo day. And I just talked to another company who's doing a negotiation right now that's looking, I think they're just finished demo day. So 
it's not unheard of. You know, it's not it's not common, but it's not. I wouldn't call it rare. Uh, you know, either right. So yeah, I guess to make the point of it, like the AOL days paid off at the end of the day, right? <laughs> like I built an app and sold it for a lot of money. Yeah, definitely AOL for the win. It's funny when we were talking about live demos and stuff. It reminded me I had this boss, and he was telling me he was told by his manager at the time that they need to do a live demo, and it was like a one of those like really big computer conventions and the demo was for Bill Gates oh God. and it was on windows 95, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you remember general protection faults and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and uh, you know, blue skins to death, but he really did not want to do the demo, but he did the demo. Bill Gates saw it. And as soon as Bill like just turned away, like as soon as he turned away, windows 95 blue screen. <laughs> <laughs> so he got lucky. Fantastic. So I kind of have some questions, I guess, more about this starting a startup and getting feedback from customers. So if you have like an initial product and what, like, did you, were you like getting constant feedback, you know, each time that you showed your product or whatever, people like, oh, like I need this or I need that, or does it do this? And then you just, you start adding features incrementally. Yeah. How's that work? 100%. So we didn't have a support team. I mean, it was me and one other guy. It was two of us in the entire team. And so when there was an issue or a question or a request, it came right to me. Every restaurant we sold in the early days had my cell phone number. And we did a lot of like on-site stuff too. We would go to the restaurant for a full day and just watch them use it and get feedback from them in real time. But I, yeah, just a lot of constant conversations with the owners and the staff using the app too, right? The actual users of the application. And there was no shortage of feature requests. That, that was not a problem. We had a backlog for days. It was more about triaging and finding out what's the most important thing to build first, right? Which I mean, that's any product, but yeah, it was a lot of communication all the time, constant feedback, you know, both proactively and reactively, right? When they called me, I could get information or if I had questions or ideas, I could bounce it off them very easily. And it helped because all of our customers were in Atlanta where I live. And so I could just go there, right? Very quickly and easily. So it made it very easy to get in touch with people and again, I had a strong relationship and rapport with restaurant owners because of my previous job. So there's already that trust there. And so I have that open line of communication already established with a lot of them. So it made it very easy to get feedback very quickly. And you also learn like when you pitch it and get turned down because you don't have X, right? Oh, that we're losing a lot of customers or losing a lot of deals because we don't have this one feature. It became very apparent what was the most important. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I was actually talking with... Uh company the other day they had a like a cloud security product and i had they, you know they kept pushing and stuff and i was like look you guys don't have and i listed off like six or seven things you know like you guys don't have like netflow collection and i can't see the query behind your policies and etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm like come back and talk to me like when you guys have a more mature product uh because like they they're like oh you could talk to current customers and i'm like no you don't like like you guys aren't even on first base mm-hmm. you know <laughs> but you know that's good feedback for them and you know, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to them in a year and they have better products. Yeah. I, I guess for us, like, because we're not restaurant owners, like we admittedly had no clue what their needs were. We were like, we don't know the problems. We know how to write code and build stuff, but like you have to tell us what problems you have so we can build a solution for it. And I think keeping that mentality helped us a ton of like, what are the problems you're having? And then you begin to notice patterns, right? And it became very clear what to build. There, there just wasn't enough time to build everything as fast as we wanted to. That was the one thing is with two guys, Right. And one of them being a full-time salesperson as well as building the front end of the app, 
we were limited and having full-time jobs, keep in mind, right? For the first year and a half, we had full-time jobs. So it was difficult to move quickly, but just kept chugging along. Definitely. So are, are you still like running that company now or have you transitioned off? Great question. So I can't discuss like a ton of the details of our deal, but part of the deal was that we would go work at this new company for one year to help integrate it. So we're still there right now. It's a great company. I love working there. My favorite thing is I was worried that, you know, getting into a larger organization, I would lose a lot of my autonomy, but they've really put a lot of trust in us to run our own ship and run our own product. And so not much has changed except that I have a lot bigger team now to support me, right? I still make all the calls on the product. I still uh, handle all the sales literature and talk tracks. So I still own the order nerd product very much so, uh, which I enjoy. And I like the fact that I got to keep that. So I'm very happy there uh, working for this company. But I think, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to do a, a startup again in the future one day, right? I got the bug. Now I did it. And I'm, I'm spoiled because I, I'm batting a thousand. I did one for one, which is not realistic at all. But I definitely want to do another one in the future and perhaps be a little more organized next time and not just <laughs> just writing code and selling door to door, but having actual plans and goals and things. Maybe you should like write a book, man, like, you know, like lessons learned or whatever, like lessons learned the hard way or something. <laughs> I, I do have a Google Doc that I started called Lessons Learned, and it's all the things that I did wrong on the first one. And I'm sure I'll add to that on my second one, right? And maybe one day I can turn it into a, either a book or a really good blog post. Yeah, definitely. So with, with the parent company, like I, I was at a company that got acquired and the parent company told us we had done really bad mergers and acquisitions in the past. Mm -hmm. Like they basically ruined the product that they bought because they got so involved and they wanted to do everything their way. And so they said, like, with the acquisition of us, they were going to kind of just, you know, let us do what we think needs to get done. But one of the good things about having a big parent company was if like a vendor was like beating us up or like we couldn't get support, right? Let's say it was like VMware and we had like an outage or something and we couldn't get VMware support on the line. We'd call up mom. We'd be like, mom, mm -hmm. you know, that, was, that, that was like our parent company. And they, and we had like VM and we enterprise support like in five minutes, right? It was kind of cool just because they had a lot of connections. 100%. I am actually experiencing that exact thing right now. We're trying to formalize partnerships with some of these delivery partner apps. And when we were three, two people, they didn't care. They never got responded to an email. But now I have this bigger company behind me and I'm actually meeting with one of the bigger companies next week at the National Restaurant Association trade show. And it's because of my, you know, mom and dad company going like, hey, we want to talk to you. They go, okay. So 100% totally can understand that one. That's got to feel good. Yeah, it helps. Cool. So is there anything else you want to touch on from your uh, AOL days or now? AOL days trying to think. I mean, I, I built a million different programs. I, I built, you know, they had the the servers, the chat room servers that you could request files from. Did you build that yourself? Or I built one. I built one. Like I, I used them all the time. Right. And then I was like, I see if I can build this thing. It did was, you build it for IRC as well or just, just AOL? No, I did build a few IRC bots, but never file serving bots. What um, did the bots do on IRC? Just games and stupid stuff. You could play like poker or you could play blackjack. And Whoa, those are like pretty serious projects. I think for like my final project in college, my Java project was like build a blackjack game. <laughs> yeah. I also began writing apps on my TI-89 calculator at one point. I built blackjack on a TI-89 one time. Oh, that's cool. That's like a whole scene, man. Right? I mean, you ever played Drug Wars on that? No. What is that? 
Oh, so um, it was back on the TI-82, I think, or 84, but uh, it was called Drug Wars. And essentially, you would get started out with a certain amount of money. And like you would get like kind of travel in the game, but it was all text-based. Yep. And you could buy like shrooms or quaaludes or, mm-hmm. or marijuana. And you'd be like, oh, like, you know, you could buy one ton of marijuana for, you know, however much it was. And the, the whole goal was to buy low and sell high. Yeah. And then I think there was like pimps and stuff. And I don't know. It was just like, it was this whole complicated <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's like, so you can buy like 20 hoes or whatever. And right. then like, you, know, you could send them off to work. And the, the whole goal was to become like, uh, you know, a kingpin and make lots of money or whatever. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like I would be at school all day long and, you know, wanting to be at home coding. And I learned you could code in, I guess it was basic was the language on the calculator. And now I can program at school. <laughs> so I stopped paying attention in class and just started programming on my T89. That's awesome. I think a lot of people did that. There was a whole community. I remember like if you met another kid with it, you could like swap games with them and stuff. Yeah. But nobody I knew was programming them themselves though. They had them, but they weren't writing them. And so I wanted to nerd out about like, you know, how to build it. And people thought I was just weird. <laughs> That's funny. I'll share an embarrassing moment from junior high. I actually brought my graphing calculator to, to a seventh grade dance. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, dude. I don't think I danced with any girls. That <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I remember building so many things. Or here's the thing. I would start projects and not finish them. That still happens today too. <laughs> there was one that I built that wasn't even AOL related. So like any, you know, young teenage boy with internet, I found, you know, pornography sites and had a small pornography collection and it was a family computer. So I was very worried about getting caught. And I had the like the images stored on the local machine, right? On the hard drive. So what I did was I hid them in like, like 10, you know, different subfolders with weird names, like system functions or whatever, something like, you know, obscure. And I built this app <laughs> called sexy pick, which is the worst name ever. But all that it did was I would look at my porn on my computer and I could again with my keyboard, like cycle through it. And if someone came in the room, I could hit space bar and it would disappear immediately. So it was a way for me to look at porn and not get caught. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. There's, there was actually an app. It was called uh, listentoamovie.com. I think it still exists today. But like I would, I was at this job that I hated. Um, it was like, I didn't like manually calculate pension benefits. Oh God. Uh, yeah, it sucks. So it was my first job out of college. I hated it. And anyway, to kind of pass the time, I would go to listentoamovie.com and it would had this little mode where you pop it out. And so it had the player and it was like a small like window. And then they had stealth mode and you click the stealth mode button and suddenly this browser window would like turn into an Excel spreadsheet. Ah, I love it. That's awesome. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so it was like a Nick Scarface or whatever. Like, I know it was pretty cool. Yeah. Did you ever get into like aim programming? I never built any aim apps. I never actually even crossed my mind. Like I like automated AOL, like, I think I was automating it all up to like version six or seven, yeah. maybe even eight. But um, for some reason, it never crossed my mind because I guess I never really thought there was anything interesting to do. Yeah, automating same. so I never did it. Same. Yeah, I I felt like that was the next chapter because everyone was leaving AOL, but they were still on AIM for a while. And I'm like, this is where everybody's at now. But there was I couldn't think of any good ideas, right? So yeah, I just went to MI. I went to, I went to IRC. I a lot of people went to IRC. I remember that. Yeah, but I don't think I got really into anything except whereas in IRC. So, I don't know. It wasn't, there wasn't like much coding to do there. Yeah. Because, I mean, we had like like the enemy, right? Which was Toss Advisor, yep. Catwatch. Yep. 
and then apparently Steve Case. <laughs> <laughs> he did an AMA on Reddit not too long ago, didn't he? Yeah, I was actually I was uh, looking for um, some material or whatever, and I saw um, Whitey Cracker commented on there because he has the same last name as Steve Case, and uh, he was trying to get Steve Case to like you know talk to him about you know the hackers and stuff, and he just got ignored. It was kind of I saw that post on the thread. I 100% saw it. I'm like, please respond to that one. I want to hear what you have to say about it. He just ignored it straight up. I mean, I was hoping because it was the same last name, maybe Steve would like throw him a bone. Right. Uh, Lame. Yeah. What are you going to (laughs) do? That's funny. You saw that one too. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I've recently began exploring web three stuff. I'm still like on the fence about a lot of it. I can't really tell how much I like it, but I, I, what is, wait, wait, what is web three? So blockchain. Oh, like smart contracts? Yes. All right. I, I'm still, I, I have like, I don't think I even fully understand. Smart, but that's like, is that like the thing where you have something where if everybody does something and completes a goal, then the contract is fulfilled and that goal happens or something? All, all that a smart contract is by definition is an app that lives on the blockchain. So it doesn't run on one particular server, like a Heroku or AWS or whatever, like the Ethereum network is run by thousands of people's computers acting as miners and their nodes. And so your software code, which is Solidity, gets put on the blockchain at an address and you can interact with it like a program. Anyone can use it and access it and it doesn't live on one server. It's, it's literally on a decentralized network. Well, hold on. So the CPU utilization, they're using like CPU from people's computers to run the app? I assume so, yes. You're, I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty ignorant on how that detail of it works. But it you simply deploy the contract to the blockchain and it gets an address and it can run code. What kind of code? It's called Solidity. It looks a lot like Java. Oh. Yeah. Is there, have there been any known vulnerabilities in this? Uh, if you don't build your app securely... I should also mention that when you interact with these smart contracts, you have to pay what's called a gas fee. So any computational power requires you pay gas, which then goes to the, I think the Ethereum miners. You can read data from the blockchain for free. Like just reading data is no cost. But if you want to modify data, there's a a cost called gas you have to pay. So I I wanted to convert like some Ethereum or something. And it was like, it was like 60 bucks or something. And I wanted to convert like $5. And I was like, well, F this. Yeah. And, and so it's expensive then? Well, for, it for, fluctuates. For it's really, it, this is probably the biggest, I think, con of Ethereum right now anyways, is it's super expensive because it's gotten so popular and they haven't scaled it that well yet. And so the, it's called gas price, what it currently costs to run a transaction on the blockchain. It fluctuates in real time. It can go up and down given the time of day, given what day of the week it is, et cetera. So things can become like three times as expensive to do a single operation as it is depending on when you do it. Which is, it's like, that's why it hasn't caught on yet because it's a big barrier. Like you wouldn't pay $10 to do this transaction. No, right? But I always maintain the idea of staying curious. Like I always want to keep my you know mind open to new things because if it does happen to take on and become popular, that whole shift and that whole new tech scene is going to have its own set of problems that are, that are created, right? Like just how the problem of tablets was created by DoorDash and Uber and Grubhub if companies begin using blockchain technology, there's going to be new problems that arise and there's opportunities for startups there, right? So I, I got into it out of curiosity. I bought like an NFT just to see what it was like. And there's 
communities involved in it. And it, it reminds me of the, the, what do we call them in the AOL days? Like there were like, the, there weren't clans, but they were. Oh, like groups or whatever. Yeah, like the alliances or whatever they were called. And there's a president or whatever. Yeah. The pres it's, and... it's that, it's so much of that scene happening all over again. Like they have a name and they have like the little ASCII art with their letters and stuff in their code. And they tag their handles on Discord with their first letters of it. Like it's the exact same thing happening all over again. There's a lot of scams too from what I'm reading with NFTs right now. So it's funny you bring that up. So the first the first NFT I bought was a project called Anatomy Science Ape Club. And it was a derivative of the Board Ape Yacht Club, but they had taken the art and like they split the ape in half and it had like a skeleton on one side. But I thought it looked cool. So I bought one for like 25 bucks. I'm like, oh, I want to see what this is all about, right? And it ended up being what's called a rug pool, where they promise the people who hold the NFTs like utility and value and partnerships and like return on your investment, and then they just disappear. They completely just, you know, AWOL. Oh, so you got scammed? 100%. Yeah. It's, it, the term is called rug pull, right? So, I mean, and there were, there were probably, I think, 8,000 of these things sold. So there's a lot of pissed off people, right? And oh, yeah. a group of us actually got together recently to try and start a derugging project. So we're starting our own collection and we're going to let people who got scammed on the previous one have NFTs for free from this collection. Wait, so you're starting your own collection or something? That's right. Yeah. We started a new NFT group. The name is uh, Cosmic Corpse Society. It's like zombie aliens or something. <laughs> but we're the, the whole point of it is to give people who got screwed in that last project a way to get into a new project at no cost to them with actual leaders who are going to do stuff and deliver on promises. So I ended up becoming the head developer <laughs> of the project. I had never written a line of Solidity until a week ago. And I've already now finished a both an NFT minting contract and a staking contract. So I've gotten the crash course in the past seven days. Wow. So you're really into this. I, you know, I was thinking, so you were talking about how like, you know, your, the, your current company, um, you guys kind of created something that brought all the different ordering companies together. And it was kind of like on top of it, right? I mean, it was kind of like something that interfaced with it, right? Yep. But you, have, you remember like probably like five to seven years ago, there was this whole, it's called low code or no code. Yes, there's no code movement. Mo movement. Yep. Yeah. So you have to worry about solidity is someone's going to create like a no code, low code thing where you just kind of like just drag like objects around to, to make like your app or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I can maybe see that happen. But I, I mean, I, I know nothing about solidity though. So I don't know. It's, it's, you can literally go onto YouTube and search how to make your own NFT. And there are people on there making videos who have never written a single line of code in their entire life. And all they're doing is copying and pasting the templates for the contracts and deploying them and starting things, which is why there's so many scams, right? Cause it's a low barrier to entry. Cause like making an, making an NFT is a very standardized smart contract. There's a template for it. You just like change the name of it and stuff like that and how much you want to supply and the price and everything. So it's, it's very easy to start collections. And then you have, you know, the, the bad actors, right? The ones who are doing it for the wrong reasons. It's interesting though. Like, I mean, we're, we're building ours to be more customized and different. And so it's, it's really cool how it works and the fact that it is decentralized. So, I mean, I'm finding it very interesting and in trying to, you know, at least explore it a little bit so that in case it does happen to be the next big thing or whatever, that I'll have a head start. Wow. So when you mint something, is that like an NFT? You've minted an NFT to sell or something? Or what does that mean? You've created it, right? So we're going to have a supply, I think, in hours of 4,000. And we're going to- 4,000 what? NFTs. But I thought NFTs were like an image or a song. Okay, so this is a common point of confusion. The NFT itself, like the technology and the NFT itself, 
is not the content. It's not the image, not the song, whatever. It is simply proof on the blockchain that you, Steve, own this asset. It, it is. It proves two things. Number one, authenticity, because you see the source of it. And number two, proof of ownership. We know your wallet has it, right? Then there is metadata in your NFT contract that says, oh, Steve owns NFT number 163 of this collection. That is this JPEG file on this server somewhere, which then shows you the image. So they don't like base 64 encode the JPEG no. or something? No. Okay. So then it points to URL that could like, you know, stop being hosted. So yeah. So link rot is a problem, right? But there's a new standard called IPFS. I forgot what it stands for, but it's, it's actually like decentralized file hosting where like the file is hosted on lots of computers. And as long as it's on one of the computers, it still works. So the other standards for the files or could it be like a 302 redirect? I, I don't know. I just know that what a lot of them are doing for the NFT pictures is they're not putting it on like a Web2 server in like a, you know, a Google or Heroku or anything like that, right? There's, they're putting it on the IPFS protocol. And so it just lives somewhere in that universe. I'm still admittedly very new to this and someone's probably going right now like, God, this guy's an idiot and he's getting it all wrong. And so admittedly, I'm still learning a lot, but it, it in the same way that the other things are decentralized. The, the file itself is decentralized. It's not in one location anymore. And that, the idea is to help prevent things like link rot. Oh, okay. Interesting. Man, maybe we should like talk to the chronic and he can like mint like uh, original AOL or something. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. It, it, and I'm learning this as well. Is it's not just about the artwork itself. Like I actually read that the board API clubs art was intentionally stupid and bad. Like that was the joke. But you actually have a membership card to this organization or this club. So by owning one of them, you get access to the Discord and access to private content or whatever that they have. The, I think the Board Ape Yacht Club did a, they opened a restaurant or somewhere in LA or something like that. Budweiser had a party you could go to if you had a Budweiser NFT. So like the, the actual content itself isn't the important part. It's the fact that you have this provable ownership of a thing, a digital thing, right? Which that hasn't been possible before. And that's what excites me. It's like, we haven't figured out how to use this tech correctly yet. I think you said that earlier, but it's still yeah. interesting to me that you can now prove, you can create rarity and prove authenticity and ownership of digital assets, which was not possible beforehand. Okay. Yeah. I, I keep like kind of hearing from like people much smarter than myself, like smart contracts are the future and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't get it, <laughs> but I think I'm trying to get it now. I've also heard of DAO. So it's decentralized autonomous organization. Yep. When I first heard about it, I think like the, the copy of the constitution was up for sale and some people got a DAO together and like they all put in a certain amount of money mm -hmm. and then they put a bid on the constitution yeah. and it's like $4 million. But the thing is they made the mistake of announcing how much they were bidding beforehand. Uh... So of course somebody just came in and bid like, you know, however much more, but from what I heard, everyone got their money back because the DAO didn't execute because That's right. it, it didn't win. Right. That's right. So it's, it's kind of cool that you, it's, it's like kind of like crowdfunding things. Exactly. Right? right. One of the big common examples of what smart contracts can do better would be things like crowdfunding because the code is transparent. You can see all the code in the contract you're entering into and it creates a trustless system, right? The code is the code is the code. It doesn't matter. And on Kickstarter, for example, you could contribute to a campaign and the owner could just bail. There, there are actual Kickstarter scams. If you Google that, you'll see them. But you could build a smart contract that guarantees that the person has to spend the money on certain things. And even you could say, if you contribute, you get to vote on what they can spend money on, right? And so since everyone can see what the contract entails, there's complete transparency and it requires no trust amongst parties. 
So that's an interesting part of it too. Again, I think we're just so early that no one's really come up with the, the big like, oh, this is how to use this technology. We're just kind of scattered around right now trying a million different things and none of them are that good yet, but it's interesting nonetheless. No, that's super cool. Like you have to wonder like, so if depending on how intricate a scam would be, if you had like a DAO, for example, and you wanted to vote for something, right? And like you wanted to vote to scam everybody, right? If there was, I assume the people involved in the DAO all interact some sort of web page or are they Discord. Discord's the big yeah. way to do it. Perfect. So if you could infect, you know, enough computers to then have the, the majority vote, you could like, you know, do something malicious, right? And vote for something that people should not be voting for, right? And then, and then kind of scam and exit. Yeah, you, uh, you could theoretical, but you could certainly misuse the technology, right? One hundred percent, it's possible. Again, that's why, like, it comes down to. So, I thought it's kind of funny the rug pull that I was a part of. You know, this is supposed to be this new transparent, trustless system we're all going to be amazed by, and there's so many scams present, right? That doesn't seem to compute for me. And I was going to make a blog post saying the transparent blockchain needs more transparency because it's it's humans doing things like rug pulls where they don't dox themselves, and so you don't know who they are when they take your money right? We're going to have to fix the human part of this equation too, not just the technology part of it, right? So, you know, part of the thing with the project we got rugged on was that none of the leadership was doxed. Was, we have no idea who they are. And so with our new project, we doxed ourselves. We're like, here's who we are in real life, right? We're not going to take your money. Um, we're putting ourselves open to the public here so you guys know who we are. How do they know it's you and not just some random person that you doxed or whatever. Yeah, you could do that. So it's interesting. Like we shared our LinkedIn profiles. I don't have this on my LinkedIn page, but if you look up my name on LinkedIn and look up on Twitter, you'd see the exact same picture, exact same name. And on my Twitter profile, I do have that I'm the head dev for that project. So you're, to your point, it is possible. I, mean, I don't know how you ever really could 100% prove you, it. You would have to have like a like a live, a li no, like a live video feed or something, like talking to everybody and be like, "Hey guys, you know it's me." Or, you know, you know what I mean. So they can actually associate the face with like. I don't know, what if I deep fake though? Oh, can't even know, trust video anymore. <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah, you can be like Tom Tom Cruise's NFT culprit. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, we'll probably do some kind of video or something to give it as much confidence as possible. Like a live deep fake. I don't know if that's possible yet, but you can play it off as live. You can play a video over Zoom or something and pretend it's live and it's really not. Right. There's a million ways to skirt reality, but I think it's 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 about how you interact, how you carry yourself, how engaged you are. There's not one particular thing like, oh, I see your Instagram page. It's like I can tell from my interaction with you you're authentic or not. And it takes time, you know. So we're trying to be really involved with the people and responsive and stuff like that. So we'll see. Like I said, I'm learning as I go, man. It's it's a new thing for me, but it just it reminds me so much of those days of AOL. Where you had the little the alliances, or whatever they were called, the clans. What was the name for? Yeah, it's 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 so similar to that. It's crazy. Weird, and it sounds like it. It's the Wild West, like AOL was, right? Yeah. There's, it's interesting. Well, because I think that a lot of folks are on AOL. Some of the folks I've talked to. They miss those days, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is the new, the new area, the new Wild West area people can go into. But I guess there's a, a learning curve for sure. I think like Seth Green or something lost like he just got scammed. Yeah, it was Bored Ape. Yeah, somebody built. I think their Instagram got hacked, and they sent out a malicious link to a site that was fronting as Bored Ape Yacht Club. And so you have to connect your wallet to give it permission to do things with an app. But like, if you think it's, well, that's your first mistake. <laughs> if you think it's through a board API club, then you're going to click connect to it. Right. 
And so apparently they've created a fake board ape site. They hacked the board ape Instagram. They used web two to hack web three, right? So it's not perfect at all. That that was actually one of the ideas that I've had and I'm considering building was I want to build a, a blockchain cryptocurrency wallet that acts almost like a, a protection layer, like antivirus software used to, right? We're like, we inspect the contract you're going to interact with before you do it and make sure it's legit and warn you and stop you before you do it if it's bad. Yeah, that, I could see that. Because if you think about like wire fraud and stuff, it's, it's very similar to wire fraud where like you're going to be closing on a house or something, right? Mm-hmm. And you, know, you show up to sign for the house and they're like, oh, did you send your, you know, your earnest money or whatever, yep. like your 10K, 20K? And they'll be like, oh, I already sent that like five days ago. And they're like, yep. no, you didn't. And it's because somebody, so, somebody got compromised, right? Either your email got compromised, the seller agent was compromised, the buyer agent, uh, the seller's lawyer, the buyer's lawyer. Um, it could also be the title company. I mean, there's like there's like seven or eight different parties that could be compromised that then sent you a spoofed email mm-hmm. that looks like the real thing. It's like, oh, the wiring instructions have changed. And then you send it. And if it's not with it, so within 48 hours, the FBI can get back some of your money. If it's like within 24 hours, the FBI can get back, usually get back most of your money. So they purposely will send this like many days before the closing uh, uh, to, to, to screw you. But this kind of reminds me uh, of some of that too. But yeah, if there was a way to kind of ensure or, or even like lock it or something or hold it, yeah. that'd be, so it would be interesting. It's funny you brought up that example because I just closed on a house two weeks ago and the lawyers are like, do not send money to anyone else but this. And like they had to like email this portal link and I had to like put in some kind of passcode phrase. Like it was very, very secure uh, to make sure that I was not going to pay a scammer uh, the money. So I, I just experienced that whole world of what you're talking about with the the earnest money stealing, right? You know, it's super serious now. I, I worked at a, at a um, real estate like mortgage company and like on the security team, right? So um, I'm not going to say the frequency, but um, there were certainly, you know, incidents that needed to be investigated. Uh, it happens to people. And like, even if you make them assign something that like warns them about it, they'll sign the document and just go ahead and get scammed. <laughs> yeah. I think the one thing you hear people talk about a lot with blockchain is all of the transactions are available in public. So if someone scams you, you can see where that money went to. And then when they send that money to somewhere else. And the problem is it's a number of, it's, it's like a bunch of characters, it's a hash. It's a bunch of characters, right? You don't know who that is. But the idea is if you watch it closely enough, you can kind of figure out when they make a purchase. And if you can figure out who any one of those recipients are, you can then figure out who that person was, right? If it's if it's in some way tied to a real identity that transaction was, but you'll always be able to see the flow of the cash, the you know the money and or the currency, I guess, forever. Like every time they receive it or send it, it's always available on the public ledger. But again, you have to be able to connect that address to the real person to ever really accomplish anything. So the apps that run, do they run on everyone's machine or a subset of machines? I, I'm, I still can't figure out where this app is running. That is beyond my knowledge, man. I've got to be totally honest. <laughs> you have to wonder if like, so like what the FBI did with uh, Tor, um, this is probably like I don't know, eight or nine years ago, you know, they, cause the FBI did, they do some good things. There was like a pedo ring or something and they wanted to like kind of catch everybody. So what they did was they looked at regular HTTP traffic and they would like kind of become a node on Tor. And then they would just inject stuff, inject JavaScript into the packet. And the JavaScript would, you know, call a website and then then they have your public IP address. Right? Uh, and, and that's what they did. So you have to wonder if these apps are running on people's computers or whatever. However it works, if there was a way to make code execute 
then you could associate then somebody's address with an IP IP address with like a wallet address or whatever, right? And then you could yeah. start to identify people. Well, most of the time you have to use a Web2 interface to do things. So it's a Web2 app or web page that is using a library to talk to the blockchain. And so if you know JavaScript, you could probably very easily, you know, get them to connect their wallet, which gives you their wallet address, get their IP, and they have an association. So yeah, that would actually be pretty easy, I feel like, to do. Yeah. And I guess also, if you just think about like forensics and stuff, you could serve a court order or something against a company and you could get their logs mm -hmm. for, you know, who, who's accessing their wallet or like what are the wallet addresses yep. that you guys serve, right? But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess there's, it's definitely a cat and mouse game. For so sure. 100%. Yep. Yeah. Well, I certainly didn't think this was going to turn into a uh, cryptocurrency, <laughs> uh, the, the blind beating the blind episode, but um, <laughs> you know, that's fine. It was fun. It may be the next scene, man. I mean, like I said, it, I, I'm getting a lot of the same vibes I got from the AOL days. Uh, and I just, I've, it noticeably. So maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it's definitely interesting. That's for sure. So are you like the president of this? No, like, no, I'm just, crew? no, I'm just the head developer. <laughs> uh, I, I got scammed like everybody else did. And there were just chats going on about, you know, starting a new project to you know, hopefully save some of the value out of what we spent our money on. And I had been learning solidity, you know, or looking at learning it anyways. And I'm like, why not? Like, this is a good reason to do it. I, I'll learn by doing, right? And so I got accelerated learning, put it that way. Nice. Yeah. Maybe I, I assume there's lesson like NFT lessons learned, but um, yeah, it seems like you have a lot of knowledge in a, a number of like hard lessons learned. Yeah. So <laughs> cool, man. Well, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on, dude. This is awesome what you're doing. This podcast is such a cool idea. I, it's, it's like, it's so much nostalgia for me to think back and then to get to talk to people who had that same experience at that point in time in our lives. Like that was an era, right? Like that was a whole point that I'll remember forever as part of my life. And so it's cool to have a community and a podcast to go to hear more stories about it and share those with everybody. So thanks for this podcast, man. It's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I'm about the feedback. I feel the same way. I, I love hearing from, from everybody in the scene and kind of hearing like where they are now and just the impact it had on them because it was, it was a super special time. Yeah, literally life-changing, so. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.